2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servant with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Job, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Job sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Job was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Job and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? 
then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had displeased, but, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, 
I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The issues we're looking at tonight are serious and they are shocking. The reading we've just heard is appalling. We're considering adultery, abuse of power, exploitation of others by King David in 2 Samuel 11. Now it is good for us to look at this in God's word. We'll we'll hopefully see by the end of tonight why this passage is good for us. We need it. And yet I am aware it may be particularly harrowing for anyone who has been the victim of someone exploiting them sexually or who's been the victim or affected by someone in a position of authority abusing their power. And I'm not speaking hypothetically there. The reality of our world is that there are people listening tonight who have been deeply, lastingly affected by the sins and the selfishness of others. I'm also aware there may be some in that situation who've never felt they can speak to anyone about it. I just want to say up front that church is not a place where we pretend everything is okay. The Bible doesn't do that. And we do want to support you in the pain of confusion. So, so please do feel that you can speak to a Christian you trust if any of these issues come close to home. Let me pray for God's help as we begin. Our Father in heaven, we are shocked and sobered by what we've just read about in David's life. It is appalling to see the carnage that can be brought from one man's sin, one leader's fall. And it's most painful to realize this is not another world being described. It's not just a fairy tale or a horror story. It is what actually happened and still happens today. And so we pray for strength and humility to see the shocking seriousness of sin and the hope, the real hope of grace and your promises. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes there is a a revelation about the behavior of someone who's powerful or respected or influential, a revelation that's so shocking, it kind of makes your stomach turn. 2 Samuel 11 is is just like that. It is stomach-churning. I remember when the the truth came out about Jimmy Savile's crimes, it hit me like that, right in the stomach. I was just appalled. As a child, I'd looked up to him. I'd even wanted to be on on the TV show, Jim Will Fix It For You. And now suddenly, a powerful man turned out to be secretly exploiting the vulnerable. He was ruining people's lives. And of course, abuse of power hidden sexual exploitation. It's not unique to him. We've heard plenty in the headlines of Harvey Weinstein or or many others. We see it in our world, but perhaps we don't expect to see it in the Bible. 
especially not from one of the heroes of the Bible. This is King David we're talking about. And to be honest, whether it's your first time at church or listening in, or you've known this story for a while and you kind of know the facts, like I've known it for a while, nevertheless, the abuse of power here, the lust, the sexual exploitation, the treachery, the murder, the deception, it is shocking. I've spent the week kind of in shock. Not from one of God's enemies, but from one of his people. Not just one of his people, but the king of his people, the one who's supposed to to protect him them, to care for them, to be an example to them of right living, the one who's supposed to set the moral tone for the nation. It's appalling what happens in his life in, one, in 2 Samuel 11. And actually, it's not just that he's God's king. He's supposed to be the better king. You see, we've been reading through 1 and 2 Samuel over the last year or so, And in lots of ways, that run-up makes this event all the more shocking. This is King David. Like, he's the great hope for the world. He's the great glimmer of hope. Up to this point, he's been a real breath of fresh air compared to Saul, the first king. David's supposed to be the one after God's own heart. So far in 2 Samuel, he's secured God's people Israel from their enemies. He's secured God's city. He's secured God's ark, God's presence coming into Jerusalem. He's even got secure promises from God, this amazing covenant in 2 Samuel 7 where God commits to blessing the world through this man's family, this man's dynasty, his house. This is great King David, the one against whom other kings in the Bible are judged. And yet here is appalling sin, shocking sin, as The horror of what his sinful heart is capable of, his all-too-human heart is capable of, is laid bare for us all to see. Now, just before we work through the passage and kind of see the story, I want to just pause and say, why is it good for us to look at this in the Bible, despite its ugly horror? It's not going to be a comfortable night, a fun night, but it is good for us. We might think it's good for us as a warning, a warning about sin in our own lives, a warning to take sin seriously. And I think it does function like that. If uh, any of us are dabbling with, with lust or adultery or lying and trying to cover up our sin, no doubt this passage does have that sobering effect. I've actually been praying this week that it would be a wake-up call if anyone is flirting with temptation. Sin is deadly, it's destructive. But actually, David's story here isn't just a kind of moral fable to warn us, because he's the king, God's chosen king. The stakes here are much higher than that. Actually, the hope of humanity is at stake, God's big Bible promises. Given that, it's really striking how candid the histories of the Bible are. We often say that history is written by the winners, the powerful people. And usually, if you read ancient histories, whether Babylon or Persia or Rome, usually they they kind of say a lot about their successes and victories and airbrush anything that might be embarrassing. But the Bible isn't like that. The Bible isn't human history. It's God's words to us. And so the history books in the Bible are candid about the weaknesses and failures and sin, even of the greatest heroes. And actually, 1 and 2 Samuel is not actually a book that wants us looking backwards in kind of hero worship of David, wasn't he great? Now, this is a book that's supposed to get us looking forwards, 
longingly. This is a book that, that's to get us to long for a better king than David, to long for God's kingdom to come. And so as we get this unfiltered view of the ugliness and destructiveness of David's sin, the sin that ruins even Israel's greatest king, well, hopefully as we go through, it will be causing us to grow in our longing for a better king and therefore our appreciation of King Jesus, a man who has no chapter like this in his life. So let's dive into our first point. Um, and our first point will be our longest and hardest point, so um, don't panic if it feels like it's, it's happening for a while. Um, you'll see on, the outline, see on the back of the service sheet there is an outline um, which you can look at and follow through. And I've called this first point the shocking, shocking sin of Israel's greatest, or Israel's best king. The shocking, shocking sin of Israel's best king. Now, when we start... 2 Samuel 11, David is at the kind of height of his power. He's secured the capital, the nation, the palace, the ark. He's got it all. He's got a mighty army. He's got an excellent civil service by this point. It's often said in our world that, that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Actually, that's not really the biblical worldview at all. The Bible says that the human heart is corrupt already. And all that power does is give the opportunity to express that over more people's lives. Absolute power gives unbridled opportunity to express it absolutely. Jesus puts it like this. What comes out of a person is what defiles him, makes him unclean. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they make a person unclean. It's not so much that power corrupts, but power provides opportunity for our corruption to express itself. So we're going to watch as a powerful David fails to say no to his own heart's temptation and then destroys himself, his family, his followers, his kingdom. The problems have actually already begun in verse 1. Even before we get to Bathsheba, verse 1, the text flags up that something's off here. Just look at it. Verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. That's interesting. So King David has got to the point where he's happy for someone else to go and do the hard work for him. He's lounging around at home while Joab and his people fight for him. We actually noticed that in the last chapter. It was always Joab, Joab, Joab who seemed to get the victories now. David's nowhere to be seen. Later in verse 11, godly Uriah is going to say, how can I sleep in my comfy bed at home with my wife when the nation and the ark are out there on the front lines? That problem doesn't seem to have occurred to David. So the slide has already begun in verse 1. He's already begun to live for self, to live lazy. Why go join God's people on the front line? Why put myself at risk out there when I can be nice and safe here? But of course the irony is, and this is as true for a Christian today as it was back then, it's not safe to be avoiding God's people. It's not safe to to not be serving the Lord. 
It's one of the reasons I'm really glad that we're beginning to get more freedom in this pandemic. We're, we're beginning to be able to see each other again more often um, because it puts us at risk if we're disengaged with God's word, God's people, God's service. But even then, David's fall is not yet inevitable. The temptation just comes to him accidentally at first. Um, in verse 2, it just happened. It's like a, an unhelpful advert popping up on a browser sidebar. It's like walking through the park in summer and suddenly coming across someone not wearing much. David sees a woman bathing. Now that was a moment to walk away, to bounce his eyes away, to recognize he had no place looking there. David's a married man. Instead, verse 3, he makes inquiries. He discovers she is a married woman. There's another place, chance to stop, another chance to say no. She's actually married to one of his loyal elite soldiers. There's a moment to recognize the horror of what he was considering, of who he'd be affecting. But, Jesus said, from within, out of the heart of people, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting. And so in one fateful moment, he puts his own sexual pleasure above the life of Bathsheba and her marriage with Uriah and the life of Uriah, it will turn out, and his own marriage and his own family and the good of the kingdom he serves. Verse 4's description is brief. There's nothing gratuitous in, in the Bible's description of sin. It is brief, but it is horrific. The abuse of power is really clear. Just look at it, verse 4. David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. The spiritual horror of it is clear, because we're told that she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That is to say, she was a godly woman. She was bathing on the roof, not, not to kind of flaunt her body at all, but in obedience to God's law about ritual cleanness. So David's sin is all the more appalling, shocking. The unfaithfulness of breaking his own marriage vows, the use and abuse of Uriah and Bathsheba, even while Uriah's off loyally serving David. One of the lies we tell ourselves, I think, in our culture is whether it's in the kind of free love movement of the 1960s or the plot lines of contemporary movies and sitcoms, one of the lies is Adultery isn't that serious. In fact, sometimes it's spun by, by the music and the dynamics of the plot to, to suggest it might be the noble thing, that it's, that it's maybe even the way of true love. If it gets you out of a miserable marriage, if it, if it follows your heart, if it, if it leads to self-fulfillment. But the Bible is really consistently clear that breaking covenant promises... Being unfaithful to someone we're committed to for life is always destructive for ourselves and to others. And anyone who's been affected by a family torn apart by the actions of one or both parents will know that only too well. But even more so when it's the king, the one who's supposed to uphold and exemplify God's law, the one who's supposed to be the shepherd of God's people, supposed to protect them, not consume them like a wolf. And actually, the stark reality is that this wasn't just a blip in David's life. 
this kind of grim pattern of indulging lust and unfaithfulness by this point has been going on for a while. He's taken multiple wives, multiple concubines by this point. It keeps being mentioned as we've been through one, uh, been through two Samuel. That is, he's not been fighting temptation, but indulging it for a long time before the disaster strikes. And the actions have consequences. Verse 5, the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Now, I actually think that's another moment when David could have stopped the downward spiral. What has happened to this point is awful, but surely now's the time to come clean, to repent, to stop the rot, to admit the crime, face the consequences. But actually, David continues to nosedive because he tries to cover things up. It's actually one of the things the films don't really tell you, is that the life of indulging secret lust or of flirting with adultery or even more committing adultery, it turns all of life into a lie. I guess in the first attempt at cover-up, David probably fools himself that no one's going to get hurt. Maybe it's actually kindest for a Uriah if, if no one really needs to know. And so verse 6, he, he summons Uriah back and encourages him to, to pop home to Bathsheba. But verse 9, Uriah is too loyal to David and the Lord and the work of the kingdom to indulge himself at home when others are fighting away. Just look at verse 11. Uriah said to David, The ark and, and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. The irony is painful, isn't it? This Hittite man, this foreigner who's joined God's people, has more integrity, more godliness than the king on the throne of Israel. But David does want his cover-up. So he, he attempts to override Uriah's conscience next. Even though Uriah's just vowed not to sleep with his wife, David attempts to get him drunk and to break the vow. That is, he does a conspiracy to make Uriah sin against his word and his conscience. It's ugly, appalling. It's exactly the opposite of what God's king should be doing. And it still doesn't work. So the sin spiral continues further down. David is now getting desperate. Although he probably told himself originally, no one has to know, no one will get hurt. He now decides someone has to get hurt. Uriah must die so that David can cover up his crime by marrying Bathsheba. Shocking how the sin progresses, the, the selfish laziness that opened the door to lust, the, the lust that opened the door to adultery, the adultery that opened the door to deception, conspiracy, and now even murder. And, and the way he kills Uriah, it's just one of the most shocking, cowardly acts you can think of. He's Israel's commander-in-chief, and he conspires to kill one of his most loyal and obedient officers. He also chooses to do it in a way that, that maximizes the chance of covering David's tracks, but at the cost of other lives. Verse 14, Uriah has to carry his own death sentence back to Joab, the commander, this secret letter. Of course, Uriah is too loyal to open the letter. He could be trusted to pass it on. Joab follows the orders and puts Uriah exposed on the front line and then abandons him to his fate. 
And notice he was not alone, verse 17. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So now David's sin has cost multiple lives of brave, loyal servants as they walked into an ambush, a death trap. Verse 24, they walked so close to the city walls that they were sitting ducks for the archers. And then when David is told all of this and told the name Uriah is dead, listen to what he says. Thus you shall say to Joab, verse 25, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. It is stomach-churningly ugly. Within a couple of verses then, David takes Bathsheba to be his wife, and the cover-up is complete. That is the shocking, shocking sin of King David, Israel's best king. It's shocking, isn't it? For a number of reasons, it's shocking. It's shocking in the nature of the sins, abuse of power, sexual sin, violent crime, deception, and conspiracy. It's shocking in scale that the number of lives that are lost and ruined from his actions. It's shocking in the hypocrisy because everyone else in the story is is acting in a godly way, trying to serve the king whilst he exploits them for his sinful ends. I think the most shocking thing of all, if you've been reading through 1 and 2 Samuel, as we have over the last year, the most shocking thing is that this is David we're talking about. The great hope for a righteous king. David, the leader who's supposed to be a king after his own heart. David, who stood up to Goliath, the one man who would in God's name. David, who was more righteous than Saul. David, who refused to kill Saul twice when he had the chance. David, who, unlike Saul, would always inquire of the Lord when he went into battle. David, who prayed the wonderful, humble prayer in chapter 7 when God made him promises. David, who wrote so many psalms that we still sing and pray today. David, Israel's best king. And David, who God has made promises to, to establish his throne, his house, his dynasty forever. Forget the house of Windsor. The house of David is where God stuck the flag of hope for humanity. And it turns out in this moment that the man right at the top is corrupt. Shockingly so. How does it leave us feeling? Stomach churning. Appalled. What does it leave us asking Well, I think we're asking, is there any leader we can find who won't self-destruct over the long haul? You see, the first king of Israel was Saul. And Samuel, when, when the people asked for a king, a king like the nation, Samuel warned them that they didn't want the kind of king that the nations had. He said, you don't want a king who's going to be a taker He'll take your daughters, take your sons, take them for his army, take them for his pleasure. He'll be a taker. And Saul was just like that. 
But David was supposed to be different, to have a different heart, a righteous king, a king who listens to the Lord, a servant king. Except now it turns out that David was a taker as well. He took Bathsheba. He took Uriah's life. And it doesn't take much observation around the world and through human history to see that actually that selfishness is typical of humanity. Absolute power doesn't corrupt. Absolute power reveals the corruption in our hearts, absolutely. I mean, you could go through that list of what Jesus said comes out of our hearts, and it's all over David's life in this chapter. From within, said Jesus, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, tick. Sexual immorality, tick. Theft, tick. Murder, tick. Adultery, tick. Coveting, tick. Wickedness, tick. Deceit, tick, and so on. All these evil things, says Jesus, come from within. And so can we find a leader who won't self-destruct, who won't destroy his own life and his kingdom? Will David's sons be any better? Well, we'll read on and find out, but the short answer is no. It can be one of the most acutely painful things if, for those who have suffered at the hands of others. Can I ever trust a leader again? I've chatted folks where one of the parents has walked out on the family and it is hard to have trusting relationships since. Others who've been burned by an experience of unloving church leadership and struggle now to trust the church, to commit, to trust the church leader. Others who've been badly mistreated in a relationship struggle to trust anyone now. I do think this is the first question that King David's ugly sin throws up. Can we really trust ourselves to a human leader if this is what the human heart is capable of? Because we like to think it's just the occasional bad apple in the bunch, but, but David wasn't the rotten apple. He was the best apple. Yet still that rottenness at the core. And so the great cry of 1 and 2 Samuel is, Oh, for a righteous king. It's actually in David's final words, if you, if you read on right to the end. A righteous king is what we need. Oh, how we long for someone who's not righteous some of the time like Saul was, not righteous most of the time like David was, with a terrible, terrible blip, but utterly righteous all of the time, impeccable, consistent, a human leader of total integrity, a man with a pure heart, such that when he has power, purity comes out. When all authority is given to him, it's not used at the expense of others, but in service of others. See, the Bible here is preparing the ground, preparing our hearts to long for Jesus Christ and love Jesus Christ. When he comes, that great descendant of David, the king who always loved God and people, who always put others first, who, of whom the one word you could not say is taker. He was a giver. He is a giver. And we can trust a king like him. We can trust ourselves to him. He's the only one we can trust absolutely. We were actually saying that on Friday night. We had a, the commissioning service for Redeemer. We are ordaining some of their elders as they go independent from us in terms of uh, both um, kind of governance and, and um, leadership. And it's, it's one of the reasons why in the New Testament, 
church leaders, elders, are plural and are called under-shepherds because there is only one chief shepherd, and that is the Lord Jesus. That's why we have more than one elder leading charmers, more than one preacher, more than one minister. It ensures that Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's the one to trust. Each of us know that in our sin, we do not bear the weight of people putting their hope and trust in us. We are to point to him. Now, of course, we are, as leaders, to fight hard to put sin to death. We're, we're to have integrity. We're to watch our lives and our teaching. We're to follow Jesus' example of suffering service. We're to be careful of who we appoint as elders. But the best a church leader can be is an under-shepherd pointing with other under-shepherds to the Lord Jesus, the chief shepherd, the only leader who will never let us down, the only one who could be absolutely trusted in life. That's the first question. Can you ever trust a man in leadership? Yes, the Lord Jesus. Secondly, though, there's another question, and, and in some ways it's the more urgent question at, this, at the end of chapter 11, uh, which is this. Is David going to get away with it? You see, so much of his sinful activity in chapter 11 is designed to cover up his actions. He's desperately trying to avoid being exposed. When his murderous conspiracy against Uriah succeeds, it seems like he might have got away with it. Except for the crucial final line of the chapter. Did you notice it? Verse 27. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, that English translation is a bit of an understatement. Literally, the original reads, the thing that David did was evil in the sight of God. This gets us to our second point, which will be much briefer. The clear, unavoidable verdict is that this deserves death. It's evil. And so the verdict is this deserves death. It's actually a, a massive relief when God's name gets mentioned in verse 27. I wonder if you'd noticed throughout the chapter, he's conspicuously absent. Seems the more David dabbles with temptation and sin, the less he's thinking about the Lord. I think we all know that personally, don't we? It's harder to, much harder to sin when I've prayed and heard God's voice that day or I've met with God's people recently. But, but, but David is pushing God to the sidelines of his mind and life at this point. The thing is, that doesn't mean God's actually absent or not watching no, he sees it all. The flagrant sin, the secret sin, he sees it all. And he sees it as evil. It's actually a huge relief as you read through. Because one of the most appalling aspects of people in power abusing their positions, abusing others, is that they often seem to get away with it. Even this week, there were statistics in the news about the number of rape cases that turn into convictions, and the number is shockingly low. Where's the justice for Bathsheba, for Uriah? Where is God in all this? God sees it all. He sees it as evil. And we've seen this in Romans throughout this year in our small groups. Every single human being will be held accountable for their actions. There is a day of judgment and justice coming. Just because it hasn't happened yet, we're not to assume that God doesn't care, that it's just apathy or indifference. Now, he's being patient with us, but he will hold every single person to account for their actions. 
And for David, the reckoning happens sooner rather than later. So look with me into chapter 12, verse 1. God sends the prophet Nathan to expose his sin. It's a really dramatic moment. We could have a whole other sermon, but don't worry, we're not going to. Um, uh, we haven't got time to read Nathan's story, but he, he tells the story of, of someone who is, um, uh, interesting, picking up shepherd language, sheep language, someone who is uh, unjust, greedy, and exploiting a weak and poor, vulnerable family. David sees the verdict very clearly in the story. Verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. Then verse 7, Nathan says, you are the man. You are that power-abusing, exploitative man taking advantage of the vulnerable As you said, the man who's done this deserves to die. And it's not just that David deserves to die. Just look on to verses 7 to 12, where the sin of David will now permeate his house. The very same sins, actually, that David has committed will will now run through his family. Unbridled lust, sexual sin, abuse of power, even murder. The sword is going to fill the house of David. And that's not an exaggeration, that verdict, as we read on. If, if we thought that chapter 11 was hard to stomach, well, the following chapters are some of the grimmest in the Bible. As verse 9 puts it, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what's evil in his sight? Verse 10, Therefore the sword now will not depart from your house, because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, verse 11, I'll raise up evil against you out of your own house. So David's awful evil is now going to fill his family, his house, not in secret, but in the open for everyone to see. You see, David's self-destructive sin has going to set off a chain of evil and violence. It's going to be horrible to behold. I was actually thinking about this. I mean, on Father's Day of all days, to be seeing this passage, for lots of us, Father's Day is a day of real thanksgiving, of gratitude to God for really good fathers. But there will be some for whom it's a day of pain, because we have seen a family ripped apart by the sins of a father. And that's grim. But again, with David, it's not just the family tragedy. This is God's king In fact, remember what his house actually is, this dynasty, this family tree. This is the line, the throne, the royal household that God has committed himself to, 2 Samuel 7. Just like with the promises of Abraham, where God said, this is the one family through which the earth, the nations will be blessed. Well, with David, God had said, this is the one throne through which the nations will be blessed. This is the place of hope, the house of hope. And David has just set off a sin grenade in his own house. He's filled it with evil. The sword and the sin will multiply. It is stomach-churning. It's actually the biggest fall in the Bible since Adam and Eve. It's that significant. It means it's not just... The question we're left with is not just the personal crisis. How can I trust uh, any human leader... But a crisis for humanity, is there any hope? 
if this family has fallen? Is it possible to move beyond this kind of sin? And I don't just mean that if you've been affected by or the victim of this kind of sin. Some of us will look back in our pasts and be deeply ashamed of things we've done. And we wonder if there's any hope. At which point, just as we close, point three, even more briefly, point three, the shocking, shocking grace of God is that his promise still stands. The back half of chapter 12 speaks of God's grace. And I actually think it's as shocking as the sin of David was in chapter 11. You see, we've established David deserves to die for his sin, for his evil in God's sight. But just look at verse 13. When David acknowledges his sin, says to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Just look at what Nathan says. Nathan says to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. It is absolutely shocking. It's God's grace in its, its most raw, pure, concentrated form because it's right in the face of this shocking evil, right after the verdict that he, he deserves to die, deserves nothing but death. God puts away his sin. And he really means it. In verse 24, uh, David has another son with Bathsheba, and he's called Solomon. And look at the end of verse 24. We're told that the Lord loved him. And verse 25 repeats it. He's given a name by, by Nathan, Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord. How can that be? How can God put away David's sin? How can God love and keep loving, stay committed to this family tree? It's not that there are no consequences. Um, they, the first child David has with Bathsheba does die. There will be uh, massive repercussions in his family. But nevertheless, God puts away David's sin. How can he not die? Well, notice who does it. Verse 25, it's because of the Lord that God loves this son. And back in verse 13 of chapter 12, the Lord also has put away your sin. That is, the Lord himself will provide a way. The Lord himself will do it. And it is shocking. See, God knew this was coming when he made those promises to David. But there is grace and hope even for David and so even for us. Most of us haven't had the opportunity, haven't had the absolute power to commit the heinous crimes of David, but we have all given into temptation in various ways. We've all tried to hide our sin from the Lord and from others. But the glorious promise that reverberates all the way through the Bible, from the sin of Israel to the sin of David to the sin of every human being, is that God offers forgiveness and grace. It raises the question, I think, how can God do that? How can that be done justly? But here's the thing, and here's the final thought to dwell on. 1 and 2 Samuel isn't just preparing our hearts for Jesus by saying we need a righteous king. It's also showing us we need someone to pay. Someone has to pay for this. 
David doesn't pay. He doesn't die. But the Lord Jesus does. As he carries David's sin and my sin and your sin, if you're a Christian, on his shoulders onto the cross. That's the only way there can be justice. That's the only way there can be hope. Let me pray. Psalm 32. David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that there is grace for people like him and so people like us. In Jesus' name, amen.